scripture reading this morning is from Apostle Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4. We'll start at verse 1 and read through the entire chapter. It's on page 953 of the Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. If you don't have one and would like a Bible, we offer that to you as our gift. 1 Corinthians, chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Hear now the word of God. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you would, be, you would have become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share with the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as least of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have now become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of God. Sure is good to see you all, be with you, excited to look at God's word with you. Let's pray one more time. 
ask for God to help us as we look at his word. Father, we thank you again that you bring us to yourself, you bring us near, we run, you chase us back, you bring us near. Thank you that you bring us uh, into a family, a church to, uh, with people that we know and love that can support one another, bless one another, and uh, we thank you that you're a speaking God, that you, you want us to know who you are, you want us to know what you've done for us, and so we pray again that you would speak today, that you'd speak right now. Uh, speak to me, speak to each one of us in a way that we hear, in a way that's bigger than any sermon that I could preach. We pray that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to our hearts and uh, just set us on fire for who you are, what you've done. Help us to be just in love with you, devoted to you. Um, We do this for your glory, Lord, and our joy in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This letter is Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, and his first line is, this is how one should regard us. So, the question then today is, how should one regard, who's writing? The Apostle. How should you regard the Apostle? That's the question. How should you think about the Apostle Paul? How should you respond to the Apostle Paul? Now that, that question might sound totally irrelevant. How many of you were just longing for me to speak on that topic this morning? Last night you were, you were saying to your friends, if only he would talk about how to regard the Apostle Paul. That would be the answer to all my prayers. Well, probably none of you were thinking that. So who cares? That's, that's always my first question. You're trying to understand what the text is saying. He's saying, this is how you should regard me, the apostle. And the next question is, who cares? What does this have to do with my life today? What does it have to do with my issues, my problems? What does it have to do with my future? What does it have to do with me? And the answer is, everything. It has everything to do with every aspect of your life. It's incredibly important. Because the right response to Paul and the other apostles is essential for the most important things in life. You might say, well, why do you say that? Well, let's just have the the tiniest bit of background. Who is Paul? Remember, he grew up with the name Saul. He was an incredibly intelligent, incredibly successful religious leader. He was quite self-righteous. And he was dedicated to the persecution of Christians. Wanted to put him in jail. Well, on the road to a city called Damascus, where he's on his way to persecute Christians, guess who he meets? He meets the resurrected Jesus Christ, who literally knocks him over. Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And that changed everything for Paul. Now instead of being against Jesus, he is totally devoted to Jesus. He writes things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He writes things like, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. I live for him. Totally changed. And now instead of persecuting Christians, he's giving his life to serve Christians. The first verse in this letter 
1 Corinthians 1, 1 says, Paul, called by the what? Do you see it? Will you follow along with me? It's page 952. Chapter 1, verse 1, called by the what? The will of God to be a, to be a what? An apostle. So this doesn't sound sexy. It's not getting news headlines. It's essential. What's it mean to be an apostle? What does it mean to be an apostle? It's funny to ask this question because you'd say, well, apostles uh, followed Christ. It's not wrong, sure. But I hope any of you following Christ, okay, I'm trying to. I hope I'm not an apostle, and neither are you. If you think you are, let's talk, right, after the service. I'm not an apostle, so it's more than following Christ. You could say, well, they, they, were, they lived with Jesus. They saw him. They knew him. And that's true. That's essential. But lots of people saw Jesus. They're not all apostles. What does it mean to be an apostle? An apostle is a messenger sent with authority. Authority. A messenger sent to authority. So here's the bottom line is the risen Jesus Christ has all authority. Christ means promised divine king. Jesus is the answer to all the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus is the only one who's lived a perfect life in your place to make you right with God. Jesus is the only one who could die a substitutionary death for you and for me to pay for our sins. He took our place on the cross. Jesus is the only one who rose from the dead in victory to earn your new life as a child of God, to earn your adoption. Jesus is the Christ. All of history is about him. And Jesus says, all authority is mine. All authority. He's king. He's king. And then Jesus said, I will give authority to my apostles to proclaim me, to tell people who I am and what I've done. So this is why the question is important. How we should respond to Paul is intimately connected to the question of how can you know God? How you respond to Paul is connected to how can you have your sins forgiven? How you respond to Paul is connected to how do you know what it's like to follow Jesus in this life? It's because it's, it's through the apostles. That's how we know. They're the authority on who Jesus is, on what he's done, on what it means to follow him. That's how we know. It's a firm foundation for our feet. This is why Jesus gave the apostles, so that we could know him and follow him. So we're continuing our study through Paul's first letter to the church in the city of Corinth. And, of course, the Corinthians interacted with Paul personally. We don't have any experience like that. But we still have... What's your connection to the apostles? We have what they taught. We have what they saw. We have a record of their example. And so, no, Paul's not coming to visit us and, asking this, and saying, this is how you should respond to me. But as we look at this question, how should we regard the Apostle Paul, it's the same thing as asking, how should we regard the New Testament? How should you regard the New Testament? Which is almost the same thing. It's connected. Is how, how should you respond to Jesus himself? Which is, which, which is intimately connected to how God responds to you. Are you in Christ? Are you saved? Are you adopted? So it's massively important. It's essential for what it means to follow Christ, for what it means to know how to live. So, so Paul's writing to the Corinthians. 
And as we've seen, he's dealing with a very prideful group of people. The Corinthians, they, they believe in Jesus, they belong to Jesus, but as we saw last week, they're immature, they're inconsistent, and in many ways they look just like the city around them. So if you looked at regular Corinthians' lifestyle and church-going Corinthians' lifestyle, you'd be like, well, they go to church and say holy things, but they're doing the same things these people are doing. They're immature. And it's because they value the same thing their city valued, which was, at its core, pride. And so now, as as we're in chapter 4, we see that their pride has them doubting and demeaning their apostle who planted the church in the first place. They're thinking, oh, we're spiritual, we have wisdom, we know better, we don't need Paul anymore. We know better now. We don't need Paul anymore. Which is the same thing masses of Christians are saying in today's world. We know better. So Paul had devoted his life to them for a time so they could know the gospel. He's the one who told them about Christ in the first place. Now they think they've arrived, and so they're inflating themselves. How many of you all chuckle at the idea of you're being puffed up with pride? They're inflating themselves and disregarding the apostle. And so Paul is pressing in on, how, on a refresher on how they should regard him, and it's for their own sake. It's for their own sake. Paul writes in other places, I'm, I'm here as an apostle for your joy. I'm here as an apostle to build you up. It's for their own sake. And so Paul will give the Corinthians three ideas for how to regard him. This is how you should regard me and how you respond to him. And so we need to listen again because this is our connection to Jesus himself. If you don't regard the apostle Paul a certain way, what are you going to think about how he wrote about Jesus? Why should I listen to that? Why should I trust him? If you don't regard the Apostle Paul in a certain way, what do you think about the what are you gonna think about the ethical commands that the apostles give on how to live the Christian life? You'll say, Oh, we know better. If you don't regard the apostle a certain way, you won't know how to trust or follow Christ himself. So we're gonna see these three pictures. Number one, Paul is steward. Number two, Paul is an example. Number three, Paul is a father figure. And this would apply to any of the apostles. Steward, example, father figure. So let's begin. Number one, steward. This is how one should regard us. You see in verse one, two things. Servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. So according to Paul, who does Paul work for? Christ. And is he on the payroll? He's a slave, a willing slave. My life is devoted to Christ. I'm Christ's servant. I belong to him. I belong to Jesus. I'm his servant. He belongs to, represents, obeys, follows Jesus. All about Jesus. Boy, if you read Paul, you'll get that much. All about Jesus. Almost uncomfortably so. We want to be like, chill out a little bit. And he won't. All about Jesus. Second, he says, he's a steward of the mysteries of God. What's it mean to be a steward? To be a steward, right, is to um, be responsible for someone else's treasure, someone else's property. So he's responsible for someone else's property, someone else's treasure. And here he says he's a steward of the mysteries of God. So somehow the mysteries of God have been given to him. He's responsible in a way for them. And what's he supposed to do with them? Hide them? Keep them to himself? No, of course. 
In the New Testament, a mystery is not something you can't know what it is. A lot of cults are like this. Um, we'll let you get in. We'll let you get confused. We'll let you invest a lot. And then we'll sneak the secret information on you later. Uh, or, or a lot of the cults will say, you know, once you've reached a higher plane of enlightenment, then you can know the, the secret things. That's totally not Christianity. Christianity is like, here's everything we believe. Come look at it. It's for everybody. All the time, day one, hear it all. We'll, we'll tell you it all. Um, it's, it's, for, it's for a child, it's for an adult, it's for everybody. Here it is. But that's not what he's talking about. In the New Testament, a mystery is like a present that's been opened. So the Old Testament has all these promises of what God is going to do, and we didn't, we didn't really know how it was going to play out in detail. And now with the coming of Jesus, the present's been opened. It's like, look, this is what you get. Here he is. Jesus Christ. And so Paul is a steward of this. Now I want to drag you to another letter. I want to drag you to Colossians for a moment. Will you follow me there in your Bibles? In the chair Bibles, it's page 983. I'm taking you this passage because I think it helps you understand what Paul means by being a steward of the mysteries. Look at Colossians 1, verse 24. Try to get in Paul's head. Page 983, Colossians 1, 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my, what? In my sufferings. For whom did he suffer in this sentence? I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So he in some way is suffering for the sake of the church, right? Then he says this incredible line, and in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. See, it's the same idea. Now, how many of you are taken aback a little bit like, whoa, how can you say something's lacking in the sufferings of Jesus? Doesn't that sound almost blasphemous? How can you say it wasn't enough? Well, let's move forward and see what he means. Look at verse 25, again, of Colossians chapter 1. Middle of the sentence, he says, According to the stewardship from God that was given to me for, for whom? For you. So again, this is for the church. His stewardship is for God's people. And then here's what he does with the stewardship. To make the word of God fully known. So the mystery is now no longer a mystery. It's being revealed. And how's Paul doing it? What's he doing with the stewardship? He's preaching the word of God specifically about to make the word of God fully known. Look at verse 27. To them God chose to make known, so he's revealing something, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this, of this what? Mystery, remember he's a steward of the mystery. And what's the mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So to summarize it up, the stewardship Paul has, remember stewardship is being responsible for somebody else's treasure. The stewardship Paul has is the news about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he's done, what it means. So Jesus gave Paul authority to proclaim Jesus. 
and all the riches of who Jesus is. And so the, what Paul does with this mystery is not to hide it and be like, oh, only the smart people can know it. No, it's nothing like that. His job is to open the present for the world and say, you saw the word Gentiles, right? Even you Gentiles, non-Jews, uh, pagans, sinners, everybody, hey, everybody, listen, you can all have the Son of God if you want Him. Christ in you. You can be united to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, through faith. You can have all your sins forgiven through what Jesus did for you on the cross. You can be adopted as a child of God through Jesus Christ. You can have the Holy Spirit with you. You can have everything that is Jesus. You can have the next life, the new world that God's going to make. You can have God himself forever as your father. You can have it all. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is what he's proclaiming. This is his stewardship. How should we regard Paul? First thing, he's a steward. A steward of what? A steward of the greatest treasure ever, Jesus Christ himself. We would not know Jesus without the apostles. That's how God did it. We wouldn't have them. We wouldn't know. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul writes, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus the cornerstone. So the church, the people of God, the temple of God, his community, his bride, his family, were built, of course, the, the cornerstone is Jesus. Who Jesus is and what he's done, that's what makes us who we are. That's our identity in Christ. But we wouldn't know that without apostles and prophets. They're the revealers, the proclaimers of the message. And so we're built, we're built on the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. And this is everything. Why do we do what we're doing right now every week? And how come I haven't started, what, what if I just started the sermon like, you know what, today, I'm kind of tired of the Bible stuff. I'm just going to give you some brilliant thoughts I've had lately. <laughs> you know, 12 steps on how to be something better, you know, have a better smile, some some coaching, some life skills coaching. Maybe I could kind of pump myself up in this somehow and, and preach myself. And lots of churches are stuffed full with people preaching themselves and not Jesus. Forgive me if I've ever done that and hit me if I ever do it. I don't, I have no interest in that. I'm not, personally, I'm not creative enough to pull any of that off. What are we, what are we preaching Every time we get together, what are we looking at every time we get together? It was something written by an apostle or a prophet. Specifically, an apostle. Because, why, why are we reading Paul and not me or Deepak Chopra? Because they have authority from the risen Jesus Christ to proclaim the risen Jesus Christ. Jesus rose from the dead and he's the son of God and he has all authority. He is the one we worship. We don't worship any apostle. He's the one we look to. He's the one we know. He's the one we love. But the way we see him is through his apostles. He made it up. He did it this way. He did it on purpose. That's how we should regard him. And it's everything. If your life isn't built on the teaching of the apostles, it's not built on Christ. If your life isn't built on Christ, what is it built on? 
See, this idea of authority is really important. There's always a vacuum of... Authority is like a vacuum. How do you know what you know? What is the standard you trust in? What's the truth you cling to? Some people will say, I can't believe the Bible. It's written by men. Have you heard this one before? I've gotten it several times. can't believe the Bible is written by men. I see what you're saying. Grain of truth. People have proven themselves over the years to be untrustworthy. <laughs> True. Most people are untrustworthy. But this begs the question, doesn't it? If you're not going to trust the testimony of the apostles about the big things of life, okay, what are you going to trust? Something's going to fill in. For most of the people I've talked to, they're trusting themselves instead of the apostles. Now, there's a contradiction here already because what do they say? I can't trust the New Testament because it's written by humans. And what are you, the one you are trusting? A human. Oh, it sounds like you can't trust anything ever. That's not going to work. It's impossible. The question is, which one should we trust? And why? Jesus rose from the dead. He made apostles that we could trust. This is how you should regard me, a steward. A steward of the treasure. What does that mean for how we respond to Paul? So if you're like, okay, I should see him as a steward of the treasure of Christ. How should I respond? Look at what he says in verses 2 to 5. Now he's dealing with this complicated group of people, the Corinthians. I just want to show you as we start this next section. Look what he says in verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce what? Judgment. Okay. The only reason you say that is because people are pronouncing judgment. Judgment about whom in this context? It's judgment about him. They're judging him as unworthy of their trust. So look at what he writes. He's being so, he's being so gentle with them. He's not just, he's not just coming out and, and hitting them in the nose. He's being so He's being kind, he's being slow, he's being gentle, he's reasoning. So verse 2, he says, I'm a steward, right, of this treasure. And verse 2, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. Okay, so this is not just my business. I'm a slave of Jesus. It's his business. So I have to be faithful to him, right? But verse 3, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. I love that line. How does he feel about the fact that they're judging him? Um, now, he knows who he works for. He doesn't work for the Corinthians. Okay? So you see, the reason he cares is not because he needs them to be like, oh, Paul, we love you so much. He's not doing it for, for, for them to people please. He's not doing it for that. He, I don't care how you judge me. Believe me, I have the whole world angry at me right now, Paul could say. At any moment, there are like five or six cities trying to kill me, so I'm not sweating it. How you judge me, it doesn't matter. I, any human court, it doesn't matter. In, in verse 3, he actually says, I don't even judge myself. Verse 4 is amazing. I'm not aware of anything against myself. So he's saying, as an apostle, as far as I know, I've been faithful, and if I haven't, I've, I've fixed it. I'm not aware of anything. That's an amazing thing to say. I, I couldn't say that. I am aware of things. It's amazing that Paul can say this. But he says, but even then, that doesn't acquit me, the fact that I don't know of anything I did wrong. I'm not even the judge of myself. Who judges Paul? The Lord judges me. The Lord judges me.
Verse 5, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He'll bring to light the things hidden in darkness. He'll disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation. Good, just, good advice just for life for us. You think we're too fast or too slow to judge people? I'm going to go with too fast. Too fast. I'm too fast. I don't know what's in people's hearts. Do you? I don't know all the context of what's going on. Too fast. We've got to slow down. Somebody's going to judge. Who is it going to be? Jesus. And he, he knows the purposes of the heart. He knows the motives. So he's going to give perfect justice because he knows the information perfectly. So we can let him do that. And that's very freeing. We can be gracious. But even really here, the, the point is, for Paul to the Corinthians, he's, their, he's a steward of Christ for them, feeding them Christ. And they're responding critically as a judge, like, eh, we don't know about you, Paul. And he's saying, you shouldn't be judging me like this. You should regard me as a steward. So if you believe Paul's a steward of the things of Christ, my next question for you now is, how should you respond to him as a steward? There's a text in Matthew that talks about uh, Jesus' apostles being stewards, and they bring out good things to feed the people with from the storehouse. So a steward is kind of like a cook creating a big feast, a steward of the food to eat. So he makes you a big feast. And so the question here for you towards Paul and towards the Bible is, are you... A food critic? You take a bite and be like, mm, I don't know, and you write a blog about it. I give him three stars. I don't know what the Paul says here. Culturally, we've learned this now. It's too hard to understand. I just, it's not interesting to me. I don't have time. How should you respond to the feast? Edmund Calamy said, Oh, it is a sad thing for a man to be serious in trifles and to trifle in serious things. It's a sad thing to be serious in trifles and to trifle in serious things. I'm an expert on fantasy football and I know nothing about Christ from the Apostles. I'm an expert on, and fill in the blank. It could be anything, right? I'm so serious about what? And I'm so not serious about... Just check what you're serious about. Look in the checkbook of your life, your mind, your values, your heart. What are you serious about? And ask, is the value of those things worth the intensity I'm giving them? Then ask, what are the serious things of life, the really deeply important things of life? And are they getting the time and attention they deserve? Because wisdom, right, would be to be serious about the serious and less serious about the less serious. If Paul is a steward bringing you the feast of Christ, and that's how you should see him, I don't want to be a food critic. I want to be the starving soldier feasting getting ready for the next fight. Because that's the Christian life. You're in a hostile place. 
the world, the flesh, the devil, the sufferings, right? It's hard. Isn't it hard to be a Christian? G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity is an ideal that, that hasn't been tried and then found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. So you won't try to be a Christian and be like, oh, Jesus can't satisfy me. No. You'll find it's hard to be a Christian and be like, it's too hard, so I'm not going to try it. It's a fight. It's a street fight to be a Christian. And Paul and the apostles are feeding you Jesus. And you need to eat. So instead of being a critic, I, be hungry. Are we hungry? Hungry for Jesus in the scriptures. That's how we should regard him. Hungry. I want to eat more Bible. I want to eat more of what Jesus has done for me, who he is. He's a steward. Be hungry. He's also a genuine example. Verse 6 to 7, Paul is going to talk about the Corinthians and their pride. Verse 6, he says, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of of one against another. Did you ever see one of those quote-unquote fights in high school? What are the, what is the, uh, what's the what's 16-year-old kid do when he's about to like be in a, when he's in a yelling match? Do you remember? The guys in my high school did it all the time. Maybe my high school was weird. It was a Catholic boys' school, so it was weird. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. They would puff themselves up. Hey, you know, why, why do creatures do this in nature? The lizard will puff himself up to scare the predator away. I want you to think I'm bigger than I really am so that I can intimidate you. Well, you and I, we're too sophisticated to do it like this anymore. But we still do it. We get puffed up towards each other in pride. It happens in churches, it happens in one-on-one relationships, it happens all over the place. Our pride, we puff ourselves up. Paul has been working so hard to remind the Corinthians of the gospel so that they'll be humble. So that they'll be humble. So verse 6, he's really, he's talking about a former conversation, right? You remember about faithful leaders, we looked at it a while ago. And in the end, Paul said, what is Paul, what's Apollos? Apollos is a famous preacher. And, And basically he said, in comparison to God, we're nothing, I may be planted seeds, Apollos watered the seeds. It's God who gives the growth. Don't boast in leaders. Don't boast in people. Boast in who? Boast in God. Boast in God. So boast in God, he's saying, I've applied this for your benefit. I'm talking about boasting in God and being humble and not being prideful for your benefit. For your benefit. It's not good for us to be arrogant. Did you know that? It is not good for you to be arrogant. Our culture drowns us with self-esteem. And there's a grain of truth in that. It's not good for you to hate yourself either. You have value in the image of God for sure. But this so easily moves towards, so many people are writing about it, narcissism. Self, 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 self. You are for me. Everything is for me. The movie of the world is about me. It's not good for you to be puffed up. It's not good. Pride hurts. It kills. First of all, it makes you an idiot, right? It really does. Pride is a lie. That's the problem with it. It's, it's not based on reality. And how do you feel about the most prideful person you know that's not yourself? You don't like them. I don't either. 
right? Doesn't pride, prideful people, it rubs you the wrong way, and it should, because they think they're, they're puffed up. It's not real. They're not that good. They can't, they can't offer that. They just don't see it. Right, I agree. They're like that. So am I. It's not good for you to be prideful. It makes you, it makes you ridiculous. It also ruins relationships. What kills pride? Or what kills relationships more than pride? I, I don't know. It's a killer. It causes, it brings out horrid behavior, horrid words. It also brings the wrath of God. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So just think on that for a moment. Do you want God to oppose you? How prideful are you really? Oh, I got it. I can take on God. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace, undeserved love to the whom? Humble. So what's Paul trying to do? Humble yourselves, guys. And he asks two questions. One is, who sees anything different in you? And that seems to mean, what makes you so special that you're so prideful about yourself? Should we ask this question about ourselves? What makes us special? In chapter 1, Paul was just talking about the cross. What, what, what human distinction is it that impresses God? Do you remember? Is it your denomination? No. Is it your race? No. Is it your age? No. Is it how much money you have? No. Is it how smart you are? No. Is it how religious you are? No. Is it if you have a clean past? No. Is it if you have a dirty past? No. No. What human distinction is it that makes you right with God? And the answer is, there isn't one. He's totally unimpressed with all of it. I don't pray good enough to pray. No one's prayed good enough to impress God. I don't sing good enough to sing. No one's singing good enough to impress God, except he loves the attitude of your heart. It's not a human distinction. The one thing that makes you right with God is how you respond to the cross of Jesus. Do you see there what you need? He died for you. He rose for you. No matter how bad, rotten, loser, ugly, Whatever you are, no matter, you're everything if you have Jesus in the cross. You're, you've been adopted as a child of God. You have it all. You're rich. We said in our memory verse, all things are yours. How do you get that? Faith in Christ and his cross. That's it. It's the equalizer. It lifts you up, doesn't it? Some of you are smiling right now because it makes you happy that this is yours. It's beautiful, isn't it? But what does it do to pride? <laughs> what does the cross do to pride? It murders pride. The cross tells you you are so bad that God has to die for you. That's how bad you are. And it lifts you up because it tells you you're so loved that God was, was willing to die for you. But it kills pride. Who sees anything different in you? He's reminding them of the cross. And then he asks another question. What do you have that you did not receive? What is so easy to boast about? It's easy to boast about what we have. Because I, I did it. And Paul says, mm, let's think about this. What do you have that you did not receive? Who gave you every good thing you have? God did. It's humbling to realize, isn't it? There are people out there who are better than you that have less, a lot less. There are people out there who are worse than you that have a lot more. It's really not the fundamental distinction. Obviously, hard work makes a difference. That's really just a different conversation. Right now, where'd you get what, how'd, how'd you get what you have? God gave it to you. How can you boast about it if he gave it to you? If you're good at something, who made you good at it? And you realize nobody pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. You know you have a mother, right? 
you'd be dead without her? Don't we think individualistically, I did it, and we don't think about, well, wasn't it nice I was born where I was born? Wasn't it nice I had the opportunities I had? I knew somebody. Really, did you do, did you do everything all by yourself? Of course not. What do, you, what do you have that you did not receive as a gift of grace? You know, what do you deserve before God? A lot of times we will say, and I get it, I know, in, in suffering, it's like, God, how can you do this to me? And it's, it's a fair question to ask the Bible, ask it, but, but are, are we really willing to say, God, I deserved the company, the house, the health, the comfort? And God will say, where's that verse? Where did I promise that? What do you deserve? And what do you have that so many others don't have? It was so touching to be with the Bransmas this week and their newborn that had open heart surgery and the bittersweetness of mourning the pain and thinking, oh, this poor baby shouldn't have to have this, right? And mourning it, grieving it. We're in a broken world. It shouldn't be this way. And the tears of the mom just wanting to hold the baby and I have to touch him through a box. It's terrible. But also the blessing of if we had these same circumstances 50 years ago or in a certain country, they'd be dead. Praise God for what we have. It's both, right? But you just find yourself humbled. There are people out there that have less. Do you deserve what you have and they don't? Is that really what this is all about? No, instead, we need to, what did you have that you did not receive? If you have something, how should you feel about it? Thankful, because God gave it to you. Thankful, gracious, because see, it's hard to be prideful and thankful at the same time. It's hard to be prideful and thankful at the same time. It's like oil and water, they don't mix. So what's Paul saying to them right now? You need to humble yourself. Remember the gospel, humble yourself. And this leads to this next argument he's going to make that is one of the hardest to understand unless you have a grasp on the idea of sarcasm. (laughs) Paul is going to be deeply sarcastic from verses 8 and forward. I'm not going to go through every single thing, but look what he says in verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And I wish you were so we could reign with you. He's being sarcastic. What do the Corinthians think about themselves? We've arrived. It's like Jesus came back and we're already glorified. We have all spiritual wisdom and knowledge for the ages. That's their attitude. They're prideful. And yet, look at the apostles, verse 9. I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. We're a spectacle to the world. He's being sarcastic. There's truth in sarcasm. Are the Corinthians kings and queens in Jesus Christ in a way? Don't they have all things in Christ? Yes. But in being prideful about it and acting like they've arrived now, isn't this just a big bunch of lies? Yes. And then how does the world look at the apostles? It's like he says, he says we're on exhibition. It's like he's been thrown into the Colosseum to the lions. And all the world is like, huh, loser. Huh, worthless. We're the weak ones. We're the beaten ones. We're the humble ones. We're working with our hands. We're homeless. We're pressed about. 
The whole world demeans us, and yet who are they? Apostles of Jesus Christ. So the sarcasm is Paul saying, you think of yourself like this, and you think of us way down here. Is that the way you should be thinking about this? Is that the way? Look at verse 10. We're fools for Christ's sake, because we're suffering so much. Why would you do this and keep suffering? But you're wise in Christ. The Corinthians thought they had wisdom and spiritual gifts. We're weak, but you're strong. You're held in honor. We're in disrepute. Verse 11, to the present hour, we're hungry, we're thirsty, we're poorly dressed, we're homeless, we have to work with our own hands. You seem to have everything. But look at verse 12 and see the character. When reviled, we the apostles, what do we do? We bless. You ever been reviled before? Blessing's not the first thing that comes out of my mouth. When I'm reviled... But they show the character of Jesus. We bless. When persecuted, what do we do? We endure. Paul has been stoned, left for dead, and got up to preach the next day. When slandered, we entreat. So they're gracious with their accusers. They're gracious with their enemies. They try to reason. We become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul is saying here, Look at our example. Look at our example. Look at how we've handled suffering. Doesn't it show we're legit and trustworthy? This is one of the huge apologetic arguments for Christianity, right? Is Christianity real? Is Christianity true? How do you know Jesus rose from the dead? One of the strongest things we can say is, why would the apostles suffer and die for what they knew to be a lie? Would you suffer and die for what you knew to be a lie? And sometimes people suffer and die for lies, but they don't think they're lies, right? But would you, as, say you're Peter, and you, you saw Jesus, you know if he rose or not, and you're saying he rose, and they're saying, we're going to crucify you upside down unless you demean Jesus. You going to get crucified for that lie you made up? You going to be homeless? You going to be beaten? You going to be poor? You going to be a slave for years and years and years? You going to endure persecution for the lie you made up? No. No, you're not. They're only doing this if it's real, he rose. And so they're suffering with godly character. And that's meant to be a contrast. Because remember, what's on the Corinthians resume? I know they're awesome. They're like a mega church. Everything's beautiful and they've received everything and they've got everything. I'm not against mega churches. I like them. But I'm just saying they look, they look fancy. What, what's on their resume behaviorally? Do you remember? They're fighting each other. Okay. They're suing each other. Chapter 6, they are endorsing some really raunchy behavior publicly. Some of them come early to the Lord's Supper and get drunk on the wine before everybody else comes. It's just a list of, you guys are gross, horrible. And yet, so if you look at their character, how do they feel about themselves? Prideful. And you look at Paul's character and what is, he's legit. He's really living it out. He's trustworthy in how he's suffering, how he's living. So this is what this means. How should you regard Paul? You should regard him as a genuine example of what it means to follow Jesus. He's shown it. And then in your response, you should humble yourself before his authority. That's what he's saying. 
because he's genuine and he's trustworthy, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Are we ever prideful before God's word? I'll believe what I... What do you do with the passages you don't like? They can't be true, right? Because you don't like them. What? Look at him. He's, he's a genuine example of someone who follows Jesus, which means he's a trustworthy authority. So that means we want to, we want to receive what he's written as our authority. We don't want our desires or our comfort or our premonitions. They're, they're not always trustworthy as an authority. Can you trust your desires and what you like? Don't they change over the years? This is the trustworthy authority. So we humble ourselves before God's word. It's one thing we teach in membership. We don't, we don't stand over God's word and make it bend its thought to ours. We want to stand under God's word and have our thought bend to its. It's our authority. And we can do that because we can trust it. Look at their example. Last one. Paul's a father figure. Verse 14. I don't write these things to make you ashamed. I'm not just trying to beat you up. But to admonish you as my what? End of 14. My children, I love you. You're like my kids. For, through, for though you have countless guides in Christ, so that's all the teachers who come, you don't have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What's he mean? I came and planted the church. I told you the first time. So it's like I'm your father. I'm like a father figure. Verse 17. This is why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So Timothy's a faithful child, and Timothy's going to remind the Corinthians of Paul's ways in Christ as he teaches them everywhere. Look at what your father figure teaches. Look at what, you, look at, look at what he wants. It's consistent. It's everywhere. So as a father figure, how should we respond to Paul? Look at verse 16. I urge you then, what? Be imitators of me. Later he'll say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Which means, if Paul is a steward of the gospel, and he's a genuine example, that means we shouldn't just be hungry for it, we should. We shouldn't just humble ourselves before it, we should. But we should do it. Observe it. Obey it. Put it into practice. Don't you learn by having something, someone model something? Isn't that a lot of how we learn? You've got to hear about it, and then you want to see it done. You see an incredible model here of Paul, specifically, he's mentored Timothy, and Timothy's going to go to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians can watch Timothy, and they can see how Paul works, and as they do that, who are they really following? Jesus. Are you in that chain of influence somehow? Shouldn't we be... Um, shouldn't we be able to say to somebody in a way, imitate me in as far as I follow Jesus. I can be an example to you in this way. right? Not in every way. Don't follow me in every way. No way. But sometimes, in some ways, I can be a good example to you. And we can learn from each other about how to follow Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. But if Paul is a father figure, and the apostles are all in a way, we want to look at their lives, what they taught, how they lived, and then do what? Imitate it. Put it into practice. Just like at home. Kids want to be like me, still. At least at this age group. 
And what happens if we don't? Look at verses 18 to 21. Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I'll find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk, but in power. What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness? It's like dad's coming home. Did you ever get in trouble? And mom said, wait till dad's coming home. And the whole rest of the day you're like, oh. And for me, I had a great dad. I knew my dad loved me. So I wasn't terrorized, but I was afraid. Dad's coming home. It's, a, it's the idea of a loving authority, isn't it? A loving authority. And so maybe there's false teachers denying the gospel. What do daddies do with invaders into the home? We fight them, right? He's going to fight them off. Why? Because he loves his kids. He loves the church. And if some of the kids are being wacko crazy, what's he going to do? He's going to try to bring a loving discipline. Why? Because he's a jerk? No. Because he wants the best for his church. He wants the best for his kids. Now that's, that's just symbolism, right? It's a metaphor. But Paul is a father figure for the church. And so he's saying, listen to me. Imitate me. Follow me, not for my own sake. Follow me as I follow Christ. Because how should we regard him? He's just a servant of Christ. He's a steward of the mysteries. So we should be hungry for what he's teaching. How should we regard him? He's a genuine example. So we should humble ourselves before what he's written. How should we regard him? He's a father figure. So let's put it into practice. And again, why? So that we can know and follow Jesus. This is for Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the apostles that you've given us so we can know you, confess our struggle in following you through them. We don't always want to read. We don't want to think. We don't want to obey. But God, we need it. We just pray again we'd see your love to us through your word. This is how we can see Jesus. By your spirit, as we encounter this truth, we can know you. We can relate with you. Lord, melt our hearts to want you again, to be hungry. And let us come to you through the message of your apostles. Believe, to trust. Lord, let us humble ourselves, not overestimating our own knowledge, our own abilities, our own smoothness, but really setting ourselves beneath your teaching and your word, that it would define us, that it would shape us and mold us, that we would desire what you desire, Lord Jesus, through your word. And Lord, help us not just to be full of it in our heads, but help us to imitate it, to put it into practice, to be genuine followers of Christ, that we could say to somebody, Imitate me in this way. I'm imitating Jesus, that we could learn from each other. And most of all, that we be, Lord Jesus, conformed to your image, that we would be like the Son of God. We know all this is by grace, through faith, through what you've done for us. We thank you so much for it. In Jesus' name, amen.